What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Finally, because um, I was going to show you all how to subscribe if you needed to, but apparently I don't. So, all right. okay, well, we're going to get started on this, and um, I will be reading the, the main part that I normally just record, and um, so I can't guarantee that it will not be a disaster, but I will work, try my best. And then Cody and I will be doing what we normally do with the podcast. And then if there's any questions from you guys, we will include that in the show. So you ready? Yeah, this is going to lift up your spirit. So if you've been down oh, today. Yeah, just... um, this is not a happy story. Yeah. Sorry. Fucking um, I'll try to make you laugh with the next presentation, which I know seems really funny um, up at this point. But... Um, I'll see what I can do. Okay, are you ready? Yep, Okay. strap in, folks. <laughs> On January 12, 1888, a blizzard began over the Great Plains that changed history. Out of nowhere, a dark cloud appeared on the horizon. The air grew still for a long, eerie moment, and then the sky began to roar, and a wall of ice dust blasted the prairie. Every house, barn, fence row, wagon, hen house, outhouse, and living thing was instantly covered with a layer of frost, blinding, suffocating, smothering, and burying anything exposed to the wind. The cold front raced across the open landscape, freezing everything in its path. It swept across Montana first and then buried North Dakota around the time that farmers were doing their early morning chores. South Dakota was frozen as children were finishing their morning recess at school, and in Nebraska, school clocks were nearing the time for dismissal. In three minutes, temperatures in every region dropped more than 18 degrees. As night fell, the temperature kept dropping steadily hour after hour, deluged by the cold from the northwest. The chilling front would bring ice, snow, sub-zero temperatures, and death. By the morning of Friday, January 13th, hundreds of people lay dead on the Dakota and Nebraska prairies, many of them children who had fled or been sent home from country schools at the same time the wind shifted and the sky was exploding. It was a disaster created by bad luck and bad timing. The January 12th blizzard, which became known as the Children's Blizzard, was burned in the memories of an entire region and its population. There was not a family among the farmers, settlers, and town dwellers on the plains who was not personally touched by death from this storm, or who at least knew another family that was. It was a terrifying event, and after it passed, the American Midwest was never the same again. Now, this is where there would be music, so pause. All right, are you putting music in? Yeah, or? dramatic pause. Okay, dramatic pause. Okay. <laughs> if you don't know them already, if you don't know them already, if you don't know this already, you're just about to listen to a special Dead of Winter episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, blah, blah, blah of America's past. Each episode is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. And this particular episode was recorded live at the annual Dead of Winter Festival in Alton, Illinois on February 6th, 2021. What you're about to hear is, let's face it, all my fault. I don't normally perform the first part of the podcast in front of an audience, even just Cody, so you'll have to suffer through any mistakes, restarts, fixing paragraphs, curses about typos along with me as I go. So welcome to all of our guests today who are with us in the VIP room of the event. Thanks to the ongoing pandemic, which none of us saw coming when we were doing this last year, we have had to do things a little differently in 2021. We don't have as large a group today as we usually do, but we're just as glad that we can be here at all. We're also glad to have all of you who are listening at home on February 9th. Hopefully all will go off without a hitch this year. We'll have a nice smooth podcast for you to listen to, which would be, of course, totally off brand for us. Uh, but we'll try anyway. Thanks to all of you for support for the podcast over the last few years. We don't always get to say that in person, but it is sincere gratitude. If you're a regular listener, we hope you'll take the time to review us on the Apple Podcast app and share the show, like and subscribe, <laughs> and get them, to, get them to subscribe. Yeah. Yeah, well, I know, but that's not what's 
anyway. This is what I deal with. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, get your friends, neighbors, relatives, people you pass on the street, whoever, uh, get them to subscribe because apparently that's important. I, that was out of order. Um, we couldn't, and believe me, we wouldn't do this show without you. So with that said, let's get on with this show. The children's blizzard began not on the Great Plains, but with a series of events in the coldest and the most frigid corners of Western Canada, where the winter, as you can imagine, is especially brutal. In the last days of 1887 and the early days of 1888, the chill over the Canadian Northwest was particularly intense. A great mass of Arctic air slowly expanded southward and continued to cool as it passed over the snow-covered plains. By the start of the second week of January, the cold air mass was sitting over the western Canadian prairies with temperature readings at places like Medicine Hat in Alberta resting at 18 degrees below zero, which is about what it's going to be this weekend here. Um, anyway, unfortunately, there was little warning for residents of the American prairie about the cold temperatures that were coming their way. In the late 1880s, there were very few weather observatories across the country and fewer of them in the west away from the Pacific coast. In those days, the U.S. Army Signal Corps provided weather services for the nation, including a daily weather map series that was started in 1871, which they could literally show to no one. Anyway, using telegraph messages, weather stations across the country reported to a central hub that compiled the readings for the map. While they didn't provide the kind of accuracy that we have today, yeah, whatever, uh, the maps did show a broad view of how weather moved across the continent. Tragically, that wasn't enough. Those in charge of preparing and disseminating the indications, as forecasts were called in those days, didn't see the danger of the cold front and the storm that accompanied it until it was too late. But they had a good excuse. The men of the Signal Corps were not trained meteorologists by today's level of accreditation. Few in America were. The state of science of weather forecasting was in the early days of development in 1888. There was no one to blame for the storm. It was merely the worst kind of luck we can imagine. In early January, a small storm developed over western Colorado, and it dragged some of the frigid Canadian air into Montana and Wyoming. Meanwhile, on January 11th, a mass of unseasonably mild tropical air moved out of the Gulf of Mexico and streamed northward over Texas and Oklahoma. The morning temperatures on the plains began to rise. Those who lived in the region were thrilled to see what they believed was a, quote, January thaw. The temperature continued to rise throughout the night, and on the morning of January 12th, it was downright balmy. Children went to school wearing light coats, and farmers went about their chores without the gloves and heavy woolens they'd needed for the last few weeks. The warm air surged north from the Gulf as the pool of cold air to the north remained in place. The proximity of these two very different air masses could be compared to holding a burning match next to a gunpowder keg. High above the earth, a strong jet stream blew over the boundary between the two fronts, pushing the match ever closer to the gunpowder until finally it was lit. The result was an explosive storm that made history. As the storm finally came together, it moved at breakneck speed throughout the day from Montana in the early morning hours of January 12th, crossing the Dakota Territory in the late morning and racing in Nebraska by the middle of the afternoon. The rise in temperature overnight was followed by an even more rapid plummeting of the mercury as the blizzard hit. The winds began to rise in the fury of the storm. A Signal Corps observer named Frank L. Harold wrote, Quote, sudden and fierce change of wind from north to south, then heavy blinding snow, the litany of fierce winds, blinding snow, heavy drifting, and bone-chilling temperature drops was repeated over and over again in the Signal Corps reports as the storm rushed to the south and east. The forecasters of the Signal Corps had their barometers to warn them that something terrible was about to happen, but out on the prairie and in the one-room schoolhouses and on the streets of the hastily built railroad towns, the blizzard took people utterly by surprise. To those who happened to be standing outside, it looked as though the northwest sky was suddenly bulging and ripping open. In nearly every account of the storm, there runs the same thread, often in the same words, they'd never seen anything like it before. Settlers who'd been on the plane for years had seen plenty of bad storms in the past, including the one they called the Snow Winter in 1880-81 that literally buried the region under dozens of feet of snow. But they'd never seen a storm come up so quickly or hit so violently. Allie Green, a 15-year-old boy who lived in Clark County in the Eastern Dakota Territory, later wrote, My brother and I were out snowballing on a bank. 
We could see the blizzard coming across Spirit Lake. It was just as still as could be. We saw it cut off the trees like it was a white roll coming. It hit with a 60-mile-an-hour wind. H.G. Purcell, who lived in neighboring Coddington County, recalled that the blizzard was like, quote, a gray wall. A newspaper story carried an account by an unnamed Dakota cowboy. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dakota schoolboy. Big difference there. <clears throat> Woohoo! Um, anyway, he said, quote, we were out playing in our shirt sleeves without hats and mittens. Suddenly, we looked up and saw something rolling toward us with a great fury from the northwest. The kid's a good writer for 15. Making a loud noise, it looked like a long string of bales of cotton, each one bound tightly with heavy cords of silver, and they all tied together with great silvery ropes. The broad front of these cotton bales looked to be about 25 feet high. Above them, it was perfectly clear. The phenomenon was so unusual that it scared us children, and several of us ran to the schoolhouse and screamed to the teacher to come out quickly and see what was happening. When the storm reached the schoolhouse a few minutes later, it hit, quote, with such a force that it nearly moved it off its cobblestone foundation, and the roar of the wind was indescribable. A school teacher named Norris Williams from Gerald County, west of Sioux Falls, was standing in front of his schoolhouse with a group of students during a late morning recess when the storm arrived. He later wrote, quote, I was just saying that I ought to dismiss school and go to Woonsocket for coal when a sudden whiff of cold air caused us all to turn and look toward the north, where we saw what appeared to be a huge cloud rolling over and over the ground, blotting out the view of the nearby hills and covering everything in that direction as with a blanket. There was scarcely time to exclaim at the unusual appearance when the cloud struck us with an awful violence, and in an instance, the warm and quiet day was changed into a howling pandemonium of ice and snow. Darkness fell, a darkness that might be felt, as one farmer wrote. You could hardly see your hand before you or draw your breath, and with the intense cold roaring wind and darkness, it would appall the stoutest heart." some really poetic people living in the Dakota territories in the 1880s. Anyway, uh, many wrote that the arrival of the storm was preceded by a loud roar like that of a train approaching on an empty landscape. As a roar they not only heard but felt inside their chest. The sound of the wind was a knife edge of cold, a cold front, smashing the snow into powder. The turbulence behind the front was so incredible that the air was rolling over at the same time it was coming down. The effect was like putting snow and ice into a grinder and making snow cones. That's the best way to describe it, honestly. By, I, did, I just added that in, so <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, by 1 p.m. on January 12th, the cold front had spread almost over almost all the Dakota Territory, the western two-thirds of Nebraska, and the northwestern edge of Minnesota. Over the next two hours, it picked up speed as it spread over the most populated section of the prairie. There was no way of warning anyone of danger that was coming. The weather stations hoisted cold wave flags to warn of impending temperature drops, but they were useless except for those who lived near a single signal core outpost. Even then, visibility was so bad during the storm, the flags were largely invisible unless someone was only a few feet away. The cold wave warnings were meant as a public service, but few people in the region were aware of it when the blizzard hit. This was especially true with the school teachers, many of whom were barely older than the children they taught. As the blizzard broke against the northwest walls of schoolhouses, every teacher was faced with the choice of keeping their children at school or sending them home. Many of the teachers were familiar with the danger of winter storms, but didn't have the necessary fuel for their stoves at school that would keep the children warm. They believed they would be safer at home. So at some point, it became a choice of freezing where they were or attempting to go out into the storm and seek other shelter. Others had enough fuel to make it through the night. Teacher Seymour H. Dopp of Pawnee City, Nebraska, kept his 17 students at the schoolhouse overnight. The building stayed warm, and the following morning, worried parents managed the snow-drifted roads to find the safe but hungry students had been sheltered from the storm. That afternoon, Dopp returned to his home in Table Rock to find the teacher at the school in that community had made a different decision. His 11-year-old daughter, Avis, and her classmates had been released from school. She suffered frostbite walking only one block home from the schoolhouse. But not all the teachers on the prairie could keep their children warm during the bitter night of January 12th. 
Minnie Mae Freeman, who was still in her teens, was one of the many teachers who faced the problem of freezing or fleeing in the storm. She had 16 students, some of them almost as old as she was, at her country schoolhouse near Ord, just east of the Nebraska Sandhills. The schoolhouse was made from sod, which was unusual for a school on the prairie. It had a crude door attached by leather hinges and a roof of tar paper with sod laid over it. Around noon, the first blast of the storm tore the door off its hinges and blew it back into the schoolroom. A couple of the boys helped Minnie get the door back up, but it quickly blew off again. This time, she had them nail it shut. Minnie knew she had enough coal to heat the schoolhouse all night, and she was determined to stay there and keep the children inside, but that plan quickly fell apart. A gust of wind ripped off a section of the tar paper roof where the sod had fallen away, and many realized they would all die if they tried to stay in the school. The family with whom she boarded lived a half mile north of the school, and she decided the best plan was to take them there for the night. Legend has it she found a length of rope and tied the children to one another before they set out, but others claim this tale was cooked up by the newspapers in the aftermath of the storm. Regardless, all of Minnie's students stayed together and made it safely to the home where she boarded. Later, Minnie Freeman always insisted that she'd done what anyone would have done that day, but in fact, many older and more experienced teachers failed to act as quickly and as sensibly. The storm descended on the town of Wessington Springs soon after it hit Ord. From noon until 4 p.m., teacher May Hunt did her best to carry on in the eerie, blowing twilight with the seven students who'd come to school that day. When the stove fuel ran out that afternoon, May and the children were suddenly faced with the choice of freezing or fleeing, and May Hunt chose to go. Just 140 yards west of the school, on the other side of a large ravine, was a farmhouse that belonged to the Henner family. The children in school that day, Fred and Charles Weeks, the three oldest children of Reverend S.F. Huntley and his wife Abby, and Frank and Addie Nearman, all lived at least three quarters of a mile away. The Henner house looked as though it was their best and safest option. The ravine was what worried May the most. It was five feet deep and the sides were steep. There was a makeshift bridge that had been placed across it, but it would be hard to find in the blinding storm. If they missed the bridge, the children could fall into the ravine and with the drifting snow, the little ones would have a hard time getting out. Well, May counted herself lucky that Fred Weeks had come to school that day. At 18, he was her oldest pupil, a big, shy, dark-haired farm boy. And when May told him her plan, Fred volunteered to go scouting. If he could find the bridge, he'd clear a path and then come back for the others. Fred was gone for a half an hour while the rest of the group waited around the embers of the dying fire. When he finally came back, the younger children cheered. He'd found the bridge and had walked back and forth two times between it and the school to clear a path. They would do fine as long as they followed close behind him. Once he got them across the ravine, they'd be able to make it to the Henner house. It was 4.30 before the students were ready to leave. Addie Nearheim, one of the youngest girls, was wearing thin, dainty little shoes. Remember that it had been warm when the students had come to school that morning. So May wound scarves around her feet to keep them from freezing. Fred ventured back outside and everyone joined hands behind him in a human chain. And just a few minutes after Fred's return, the storm had grown worse. The tracks he'd made in the snow were now completely drifted over. There was no sign of the bridge that he'd managed to find two times. The school and the Henner house were only separated by 140 yards, the length of a football field and a half. But on a clear day, even the youngest child could have walked it in less than a few minutes. But in the storm, blinded, deafened, and barely able to breathe in the cold wind, the best laid plans went awry. It was the ravine that brought on the initial panic. Stepping out where he believed the bridge to be, Fred fell through the snow, which had drifted into the ditch, and dragged the others down with him. They crashed into the cold snow in a tangle, and it would have been funny if not for the horror of the storm and the terror being felt by the children. As they wrapped themselves back in their coats and scarves and struggled out of the snow, precious minutes and body heat were lost during their efforts. Somehow they managed to make it out of the ravine, determined to march the rest of the way to the Henner house. Fred led the way, praying that he was going in the right direction. With every step, he expected to catch a glimpse of the house ahead of them through the gray snow. By now, the sun had set, and what little light remained was rapidly fading from the sky. Their dogged determination drained the energy from their bodies until they became exhausted to the point of near collapse. 
It was a short distance to the house, but they fought the elements in thin cotton clothing with their eyelashes frozen shut and masks of ice hanging from their faces. They plunged ahead in the same storm in which cattle were dying, standing up, suffocating as they froze solid. When the children had climbed out of the ravine, the students were soaking wet and nearly blind. Most had lost the use of their fingers. Addie Nearheim had no sensation in her toes. Panic had stolen what little heat remained in their bodies, and within minutes, all of the children except for Fred and his brother were ready to give up. Fred pushed them on, and when suddenly he stumbled on a straw pile that belonged to the Henners, he believed they were saved. The party could shelter inside the straw for a few minutes while he went to look for the farmhouse. Then he could come back out and lead them to safety. By pure luck, Fred found a pitchfork in the snow and enlisted the help of his brother Charles to dig out a cave in the shelter of the straw. They hollowed out a space for Miss Hunt and pushed all of them inside. Huddled together and shivering, the claustrophobic interior of the straw pile was much better than being out in the wind. May insisted that Fred should not go out looking for the farmhouse alone. Charles would go with him and Ernest Huntley volunteered as well. Before they set out, someone had the idea of making a guide rope for them to use. Several of the girls had worn aprons to school that day and May collected them and tore them into strips. When all the pieces were tied together, they had a good length of rope. Fred would take one end and Mary would hold tight to the other. When they found the farmhouse, which based on the proximity of the hay pile should have only been a few yards away, they could follow the rope back and find the others. Or if they failed to find the house, at least they wouldn't be lost in the storm. Fred and the other two boys went back outside and began to walk around the straw pile in ever larger circles. One time around, then a few steps further, and they'd circle it again. They shouted as loud as they could and held out their arms in front of them, hoping to brush the side against, or against the side of the building, a piece of equipment, or anything at all. They looked as hard as they could, but could see nothing. They heard nothing but the howling wind. At least they had the rope from the aprons to guide them back to the hay pile, because without it, they surely would have wandered into the storm and frozen to death. Fred and the others, failing to find the house, pushed their way back into the straw pile, but May Hunt refused to give up. All eight of them shouted for help, praying the Henners would hear them until their voices gave out. No one came to their rescue. When the smaller children began to shake uncontrollably, May directed Fred to dig deeper into the straw pile, making a larger cave where all of them could pile together and ride out the storm. He did the best he could, and they all settled in. Without being asked, Fred took the place at the mouth of the straw cave, which was the coldest and most exposed spot. He did the best he could to shelter the others. They hadn't eaten since noon. They had no adequate clothing, no blankets or gloves, and few had worn hats. For a while, they told stories and sang songs, but eventually the children began to fade. May did all she could to keep them awake, even when they wept from fear, hunger, and the cold. Fred Weeks, whose extraordinary bravery would be celebrated after the storm, kept guard at the mouth of the straw cave and climbed out every few hours to check on the progress of the blizzard. At 4 a.m., he went out to see that the air had cleared and there were a few stars overhead, and there, less than 20 yards away, was the Henner farmhouse for which he'd searched so desperately. He staggered to the house on frozen feet and shouted and pounded on the door until Mr. Henner answered. Fred and Mr. Henner returned to the haystack as quickly as possible, bringing lanterns and piles of blankets. They called to May to bring the children to safety. At first, the smaller children were groggy and slow to react. They shivered uncontrollably as soon as they got outside. Fred, despite the condition of his hands and feet, wrapped the children in blankets and shawls and sent them stumbling into the farmhouse. Soon they were all inside, except for Addie. In the excitement of the rescue, no one had noticed at first that something was wrong with Addie Neerum. She was unable to stand up and had to be pulled out of the straw pile. They quickly realized it was her feet. They'd gotten wet when she fell into the ravine, and after taking shelter in the haystack, her shoes and stockings had frozen solid. As she huddled in the cave, the warmth drained out of her feet, and they remained encased in ice, wool, and leather all night. At some point, her feet had turned to ice. Fred carried her into the house, and they removed her shoes and stockings. May Hunt was appalled. She'd never seen human flesh that looked like that before. Frostbite had set in, and Addie's feet looked like black and purple marble. In those days, the standard home remedy for frostbite was to rub the frozen flesh with snow and then let them gradually, appear, uh, gradually thaw in warm water. Today, we'd use warm water and antibiotics, but even modern medicine could not have saved Addie's feet. Eventually, gangrene set in and one foot was amputated. The other was saved, but she lost all her toes. 
We'll never know how many, how many spent the night out on the prairie, but it was likely in the thousands. They were stranded in the southern and eastern parts of the Dakota Territory, in the eastern part of Nebraska, and in southwestern Minnesota. The northern section of Dakota was largely spared because the storm came through so early that people stayed home and kept their children inside. Iowa, although it received the heaviest snow, suffered few casualties. The storm didn't arrive there until late in the day when night was falling and the farmers and their children were safely at home. But in southern Dakota and Nebraska, the timing of the storm could not have been worse. And many of those overtaken by the storm perished, and more than 20% of those who died were children. Their suffering was terrible. They froze alone or with their parents or died in mad, frantic searches for loved ones. They died with the frozen skin torn from their faces where they had clawed at the mask of ice that covered their flesh with numb fingers. Some had died within hours of becoming lost while others lived through the night and then died at first light. They were found standing waist deep in snowdrifts with their hands frozen to barbed wire fences clutching at their clothing, buried under wagons, on their backs and face down in the snow with their arms outstretched as if trying to crawl to safety. Women died sitting upright in their homes with their children gathered around them. Their fires had gone out when the last bits of wood, hay, and broken furniture had been exhausted and the hearth had grown cold. A young couple in Minnesota died kneeling side by side with their hands held above their heads. A Nebraska boy named Roman Heitrich, age nine, was walking the prairie with his dog when the storm overtook them. The dog showed up that evening at home, scratching at the door at a neighbor's house. Roman's coat was found in March, but his body was not discovered until days later. He died alone, leaning against the side of the hill. The search party speculated that he had unbuttoned his coat to try to keep his dog warm, warm but the wind had torn it from his back. William Klemp, a young Dakota newlywed, left his pregnant wife at home and went out into the store to care for their, their livestock. He never returned. A few weeks later, Klemp's wife gave birth to a son. It was spring before Klemp's body was found in a sod shanty a mile from the house. A young Nebraska school teacher named Lois Royce huddled all night on the prairie with three of her students, two nine-year-old boys and a six-year-old girl. The children cried themselves to sleep. Lois stretched out on the ground, lying on her side with her back to the wind, and the children sheltered in the hollow of her body. She covered them with her cloak. The boys died first. Lois felt one of their bodies stop moving as the breath left him, and he went cold. The second boy died a few hours later. The little girl, Hattie Rosberg, had begged her teacher through the night for more blankets and died at daybreak, crying, I'm so cold, Mama, please cover me up. When the air had cleared enough to see, Lois left the three dead children lying together and crawled a quarter of a mile on her hands and knees to reach the closest farmhouse. In Dakota's Beetle County, a farmer in his 30s named Robert Chambers was outside watering his cattle with his two sons and their Newfoundland dog when the storm hit. The older boy, who was 11, suffered from rheumatism, so Chambers sent him home before the weather got too bad. He thought that he and his nine-year-old boy Johnny could get to the cattle in the barn by themselves. The dog would know the way. But in the horror of the storm, the father and son became confused and lost and soon realized they had no hope of making it to the house. Chambers buried, burrowed down into a snowdrift and wrapped Johnny in his jacket and vest. Neither of them had worn a coat outside on that balmy morning. Robert placed the boy in the snow shelter and then stood in the storm and shouted for help for as long as his voice held out. The dog barked frantically in unison, but neither of them would be heard over the wind. By evening, Chambers was too cold to do anything but lie down in the snow next to his son. The dog lay next to them, providing a little extra warmth. Johnny later recalled how, recalled how cold his father's body was, and he urged him to get up and look for the line of trees they had planted near the house, but Chambers would not leave his son. As the night wore on, father and son spoke of death, and Chambers assured Johnny they would survive and repeated over and over again that the boy needed to lie still. Johnny knew that his father was freezing. At some point, the boy dozed off, and when he awoke, his father was still alive, but only barely. Chambers told his son to pray, and he would pray with him. At daylight, a rescue party found the Newfoundland barking and found them. The snow had drifted so deeply that Johnny was completely buried. Robert Chambers was dead. The dog was standing guard over them both. Before dawn on Friday, January 13, 1888, the blizzard blew itself out. The last gusts of wind pushed at the drifts and hollows of snow, and then a high-pressure system 
moved in and the air grew dry and bitterly cold. The temperature plunged even further and when morning came, a bright sun made the landscape shimmer with white light. A Southern Dakota farmer named Thomas Pierney wrote, quote, it was beautiful, but awe-inspiring scene. The frost sparkled like myriads of diamonds, again with these poetic Dakota farmers. And the sun dogs were as beautiful as a rainbow. Overall, there was a death-like stillness, not the sounds of a dog barking, a cow bellowing, or a horse neighing. The hills, which had been sharply outlined, were now but rounded knolls. Ravines had almost disappeared. Everything there was perfect whiteness. The snow from the house chimneys went straight up in round columns high into the sky. This was the only sign of life about us. Towns and cities across the region were paralyzed. The streets were drifted over, the stores and schools were closed, the railroad yards deserted. Residents later wrote that no team or vehicles of any kind moved about. There were reports of drifts that were at least 20 feet high. Trains were abandoned on impassable tracks. Locomotives equipped with plows set out from Aberdeen, Sioux Falls, Omaha, and Lincoln along the major routes, but were unable to break through the wind-packed drifts. Heavy snows pulled down the telegraph wires, and that a word came or went for most of western Iowa. Across the prairie, nothing moved. Every object that was large enough to raise a profile across the landscape had been turned into a drift of snow. The exposed northern and western faces of these objects, though, had been scoured clean by the wind. The first rays of the sun brought color to the open fields, but no warmth. At odd intervals in the vast, smooth, white surface, dark and irregular specks could be seen. These were the cattle that had not been brought to shelter the previous day. They'd frozen in the pasture, still standing upright. As the sun gleamed, smaller objects began to appear in the whiteness. The gray sleeve of a coat, a boot, a tangle of hair, or a child's small hand. It seemed incredible that a person could survive that night without shelter or food, yet many did. Although some of them that survived the night died in the new light of day. Two children, Amelia Shirk and Omar Gibson, had lived through the night because of a horse blanket. They buried themselves beneath it and managed to make it through the storm, even though the horse it belonged to had vanished in the blizzard. Amelia was 12, Omar 16, the younger brother of the girl's stepfather. They weren't blood relatives, but Omar tenderly cared for the girl. He wrapped her in the blanket, and when she could not stop shivering, he gave her his jacket as well. The snow covered them, providing some barrier between the wind and bitter cold. They were both alive at sunrise. In fact, Omar was strong enough to get to his feet without help. He told Amelia he was going to search for their horse, took a few steps, and then died on his feet. He fell to the ground face down in the snow. The same thing happened to a boy named Jesse Beadle in Dakota's Gerald County. Jesse and his grandfather had ridden to his school that day before in a horse-drawn sleigh. His grandmother was filling in as a substitute teacher for a few days at the school. The blizzard struck late in the morning, and at first his grandmother decided they should wait out the storm in the schoolhouse, but as the blizzard raged on, she and Jesse began to worry about the safety of their horse, which was still hitched at the south end of the building. Their house was only three miles from the school to the southeast, which meant they would have had the wind at their backs. They got most of the way there before the horse floundered in the deep snow. Jesse unhitched the animal and freed it from its drift, but the sleigh was stuck. Disoriented by the whiteout conditions and unable to walk through the deepening snow, Jesse turned the sleigh on its side so that it could break the wind. He gave his grandmother the blankets from the sleigh and huddled down beside her. They endured the night, and at dawn, Jesse saw a house about a half mile away. He told his grandmother to wait for him in the shelter of the sleigh while he went for help. He pulled himself to his feet, managed to stagger a short distance toward the house before he collapsed. He, too, died moments later. Jesse and Omar died of cardiac arrest caused by shock. All night long as they lay in the snow, their bodies fought to keep warm by drawing the blood away from their skin and their exposed extremities and pushing it deeper into their body's core. In the morning, when the boys stood up and tried to walk for the first time in hours, the sudden change of position sent their blood rushing to their hands and feet. When it returned to their pumping hearts, the organs suddenly stopped. The boys blacked out and dropped where they stood. Doctors would later call this rewarming shock. It was also what killed Frederick Milbuyer, age 18. Frederick had been caught out in the storm in an open bobsled with his sister Christina, her husband Jacob Kurtz, and their baby. They were on their way home from dinner at the home of Jacob's parents near Yankton in the Dakota Territory. When the horses refused to walk in the wind, Jacob left his wife, child, and brother-in-law in the bobsled and went for help. 
He only made it a few yards before he was knocked down by the wind. Unable to get up, Jacob lay in the snow and slowly lapsed into unconsciousness. Trapped in the bobsled, Christina unbuttoned her dress and her blouse and placed her baby next to her naked skin. This probably saved both of their lives. In the morning light, Christina and Frederick saw a farmer in the distance gathering hay from the pile near his house. Frederick climbed out of the bobsled and unable to walk, he began to crawl towards the farmer. When the farmer saw him, the farmer and his family quickly got Frederick, Christina, and the baby into the house. Wrapped in blankets and given warm drinks, Frederick suddenly died a few minutes later. Rescuers went out to look for Jacob Kerbs and found him buried in the snow. They reported he was entirely frozen and beyond hope. For most, the suspense of the night ended on that bright sunny morning one way or another. In the clear light of day, husbands tracked down wives who'd wandered out into the storm. Wives found husbands who'd gone out to bring in the cattle and had not come back. Dogs returned home with or without their masters. Parents rushed to country schools where their children had spent the night huddled around fires made from burning desks and chairs. Or the schools were empty, the children missing, the teachers frantic with grief and remorse. News of the missing, the living, and the dead was carried into towns on foot or on horseback and spread from hotels, the Western Union offices, and railroad station agents. One terrible story after another circulated back east to the newspaper offices in the cities and small towns. Among the stories were these. Mr. Stearns, a Dakota school teacher, had taken his three children to the school where he taught in dismet and never returned home. A Nebraska farmer named Klaus Blake had found a bobsled turned upside down and buried in a snowdrift. When he righted it, he found the body of a little boy frozen underneath. In the country south of Sioux Falls, Peter Werngarter gathered his neighbors to help search for his four children. The men walked the route the children took home from school, and he spotted his 17-year-old daughter first. She was in a grove of saplings with her back to a tree. She had frozen to death standing up. Her brother and two younger sisters were huddled at her feet. All of them were dead. Peter Hines, a farmer who lived nearby, lost three boys. Crazed with grief, Hines was on his way to the schoolhouse to kill the teacher who had let them leave in the storm. But a neighbor whose children had survived stopped him and told him what had happened. When the storm came, the teacher begged the children to stay in the school. She even locked the door, but the children refused to obey her. One of them, a strong boy of 17, overpowered the teacher and managed to open the door. They fled for home into the storm. Hines' sons were among them. The boys made it two miles before they collapsed in a pasture and died. There was a cruel aftermath to the blizzard. In addition to the hundreds of funerals, there were the surgical amputations of those who lost fingers, ears, toes, feet, and noses to frostbite. There were also those who survived the night only to die soon after from illnesses caused by exposure to the elements. The precise number of the dead was never determined. Estimates published in state histories and local newspapers have ranged from 300 to 500 souls. The southern and eastern parts of the Dakota Territory suffered the majority of the casualties. Undoubtedly, many of the deaths that occurred in those lonely places that were far off the beaten path were never reported at all. Many died in the weeks after the storm from pneumonia and from infections contracted after the amputations. For many years afterward, gatherings of any size in Dakota or Nebraska always included people who walked on wooden legs, held fingerless hands behind their backs, or hid missing ears under hats. They were all victims of the children's blizzard, but they were the ones who escaped with their lives. In 1909, South Dakota historian Cable Holt Ellis wrote, quote, The dark, blinding, roaring storm once experienced remains an actual living presence that has marked its pathway with ruin, desolation, and death. The 12th of January, 1888 is, long will be, remembered not only by Dakotans but by many in the Northwest, not for the things we enjoy, love, and would see repeated, but for its darkness, desolation, ruin, and death, and for the sorrow sadness, and heartache that followed. There's no question that the prairie was devastated by the January 1888 blizzard, and to those who survived it, it truly did remain an actual living presence. Every pioneer who wrote a memoir and every family that recorded its history included a story of someone who died in the blizzard. Every story was heartbreaking, but some were stranger than others. There were tales of the dead who lingered after the storm. It was not uncommon to hear weird and eerie tales of specters that were seen during the storms that came after the January 12th blizzard. 
Often there were faces and figures that seemed strangely familiar but should not have been there because they had died weeks before. One family told a story about a stormy night later that winter when a lost loved one came calling. A Dakota farmer named Peter Klein was gathered around the fire with his wife and two surviving children one cold night in February. A storm had come up after dinner, blowing and buffeting against the house, and conjured up bad memories of the night when their 12-year-old son had been lost in the blizzard. The three Klein children had tried to walk a mile home from school after their teacher had released them and the oldest boy had died. The other children had somehow survived, buried under a wagon, nestled against their brother's body. The two children had both lost toes from frostbite and were slowly recovering at the time of this second, much quieter storm as it swept across the prairie. Late that night, after the children had fallen into a fitful sleep, Klein and his wife heard an odd noise outside. Klein was convinced it was someone calling out in the storm, and it sounded as though the voice was calling out, Papa. Mrs. Klein was startled by the sound and tried to convince her husband that the voice belonged to their dead son. Klein adamantly did not believe in spirits. Their son had to have been taken to be with God, but was shaken himself when he heard a knock on the door. It must be a neighbor, he assured his wife. Klein went to the door and opened it, only to find a ribbon of snow swirling in the wind. There was no one there, he thought, until he lifted his lantern and caught the white oval of a face in the darkness. Stifling a cry, he rushed out into the storm. It was his son. Somehow the boy had returned, but as he stumbled out into the snow, the face vanished as if it had never been there at all. The Kleins were not the only ones who claimed to be visited by those who died in the blizzard. A widow from near Sioux Falls claimed she saw her husband walking out of their barn one day. He'd vanished in the storm. His body had not been found. Elated that he had somehow survived and had come home, she ran out to greet him, but there was no one there. She'd seen a man walking, but he left no footprints behind. She was convinced the man had been her husband, although his body was found in March at the bottom of a ravine where he'd apparently fallen during the storm. The children's blizzard left an indelible mark on the history of the American prairie, and its effects lingered in both sorrow and hauntings for many years after the last physical effects of the storm had long since passed. It can perhaps best be summed up by the words of Sadie Shaw in a letter to her relatives back east. From her Douglas County homestead, she wrote, quote, I have seen the dread of Dakota. Oh, it was terrible. I have often read about blizzards, but they have to be seen to be fully realized. Now, music would play here, but it won't because we're sitting here. So, Cody loved this story. Does anybody else need like a cigarette? <laughs> like, I need to like lie down for like a half hour. <laughs> Jesus H. Okay, uh, Troy doesn't want me to do an intro, but I'm going to do it. So, thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings podcast, oh, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the frozen side of American history. <laughs> Uh, this is going to be a bad one. You are tuning into season five of the podcast Haunted Hollywood, but today we are coming to you live from the Dead of Winter Festival 2021 at the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, Illinois. I am your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, the founder of American Hauntings, and recent Discovery Plus star, Troy Taylor. <laughs> There were, there were two cameras in that room. <laughs> we filmed that during the pandemic, and there was no one in the room with me. I was completely in an empty studio, and the cameraman would come in every once in a while to adjust the cameras, but that was it. And I did all the interview stuff through Skype with the producers who were in California because they couldn't leave, and this was in May, so everything was shut down. Uh, I had drove down to St. Louis to do it, and it was like a ghost town. I'd never seen anything this empty before, but... So if you watch that, there's only two shots of me, one straight on and one from the side. They got and that tattoo. all I can see is this damn shamrock. In every scene is a shamrock. And it's like I look like an Irish gang member. So I, yeah, anyway, so that's, that was my takeaway from the show. Great, great. No, it, oh, it, also, I, if you watch it, you'll know a secret. I cut my own hair. Because I couldn't go get a haircut anywhere. So I shaved my head in April. Some of you who watched the live streams during the pandemic know that I kept shaving my head. 
And then they ask me to do this, and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to get my hair to grow back? I wonder if they let me wear a hat. You know, um, all of these things are crossing my mind. So I got just the top to barely grow back. I kept shaving the sides so it looked longer. And, uh, but I want you to know that, that that was I did that haircut myself. Just so you know. Well, you look so. you look great. You look like you did, you did like you did hard time. Yeah, exactly. I do. I look like you just got out of prison. So yes. to film that. Nice so. shirt though. Yeah, oh yeah, it's yeah, a long no, story about the shirt. A we long will not story. tell that. We won't. But, uh, yeah. No. So Dead of Winter, thank you all for coming out. I know this is very weird, conventional, and weird, and but that's just the state of everything. Uh, I've said this before, but Dead of Winter, when we do this live podcast, it's really like this is not an original thought, but it's like it's like a little kid's birthday party, right? Where like there's not a lot for you to do, but the kids having a really good time, so you just kind of like go with it. This is for me. Like, <laughs> this is all for me. I have a captive audience because I literally locked that fucking door back there, so everyone is, <laughs> is stuck, and you just have to sit here and just watch me do comedy, basically. <laughs> um, so I think with a story like this, that's so upsetting and actually made me feel things for once. Yeah. Um, there's going to be a lot of jokes just to kind of like, I'm just, I just, I want to find a way to, to, to break the ice. You know, I just, I just want everybody to like, just, just chill so out, speak. you know, like just be cool. It's just be cool, man. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a, it's a pandemic. Um, so, but so just, this is a great way to get started. Troy, I'm just wondering if you die in a storm like this, are, are all your assets immediately frozen? <laughs> oh, how do, God, how yeah. does that how does that? I'm so sorry. You're just gonna sit well, in this. Okay, I'm not used to hearing Troy actually do the monologue and then and right, jumping into right, you it. Just so to it so you all just heard this, but I'm just gonna jump in and kind of do my normal thing. So January 12th, 1888. There's the blizzard. Yes. We we got that much. Uh, by the morning of Friday, January 13th, hundreds of people lay dead in the Dakota and Nebraska prairies. Many of them children who had fled or been sent home from uh, county schools. At the same time, the wind shifted. The sky was exploding. So if anybody listens to the podcast, you know I don't give fuck about kids like like <laughs> we know at all we know at all no. but this hurt this story was terrible like some it of the, 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 the and the no. sentences you wove together were so beautifully morbid and upsetting and it reminded me why you're such a great author but i have to <laughs> dig, dig at you a little bit about this so it's known as the children's blizzard that's a Dairy Queen order, right? Like, yeah, right, like, exactly. It, so, For, uh, off the kids' menu. Yes, off the kids' menu. There's not a lot I of I wonder more. if there is one. I think there really, I, no, I think there really is. Flamethrower so. burger, children's blizzard. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of warning about the incoming weather in those days. Well, um, none. Yeah. Yes. Just said, like now, pretty much. So, I mean, okay, the you. Weather forecasters haven't improved. I literally much, took really. notes during this because, like, you stole one of my jokes. I was oh, like, great. has anything really changed? But you already yeah, kind of. I've kind of dug that to death. Yeah, so. you, you jumped at that. So, yeah. the, the morning temperatures, like you mentioned on January 12th, they weren't really that bad. Children went to school wearing light coats. Farmers went about their chores without the gloves and heavy woolens they needed for the last few weeks. So, this essentially turns into like the perfect storm, but on land right like sure. with, yeah with the different pressure systems and things like that and again i know we just heard Which a lot I may of this have spent a little bit too much time on no no no, no. I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna weather fronts i'm gonna and, quote some of this know, again so. he said to those who happened to be standing outside it looked as though the northwest sky was suddenly bulging and ripping open in nearly every account of the storm there runs the same thread often the same words there had never been anything like it before have you ever been just like stuck or caught in a crazy um no not really weather? because i'm smart enough to come in Side. You just never, um, never shit, shit happens. I, like, I know, but no, I've never been like trapped in a blizzard. But um, as I had told Cody, I had put this together. Um, I had a couple of options on what story to do, and I decided to do this one because I just finished writing a book about the Donner Party, and um, talk about depressing. But um, <laughs> and I, I'm hungry all the time. I just, you know, Donner um, anyway, Party. Of all I could think about was how cold these people were, uh, constantly cold. And uh, I told Cody the other night, uh, I saw, when I saw him last night, I bought the first like, actual coat that I've owned in like 25 years. Um, I, I, I don't like heavy coats. Um, even when I lived up north, I would just put on like three jackets instead. I just don't like heavy coats, but I bought a parka with like fur on it and everything. Um, because, well, not real fur. It's a sight to see. Yeah, don't, yeah. But I needed, I, it made me, it was like PTSD <laughs> after writing the Donner Party book and then this episode of the yep. podcast, I, I needed a coat. <laughs> So I just kept picturing myself, you know, in a cabin somewhere thinking about eating my relatives. And I just decided a coat would be a good idea. Not that that would help me not be hungry, although I guess right. I could eat my coat. But um, 
you know, I, I just, the cold thing yeah. really got to me. Yeah. And then I saw how cold it was supposed to be this weekend after today, and I thought, I'm going to buy a coat. Yeah, no, that's fair. And it, it's not real fur. You can still throw fake blood yeah, on yeah, Troy no, if you'd like. Real, yeah, it's not real fur. So you said, you said Sutters have been on the plains for years and seen plenty of bad storms in the past, including one that they called Snow Winter in 1880, 1881. Was creativity not invented uh, yeah, in the 1900s? Children's Blizzard came around in 1888, so they decided something more colorful than, well, that's like Snow here in Winter. Illinois in 1830, we had what they called the deep snow. Again, very creative, but yeah. that was the one that almost killed Abraham Lincoln. It was that cold, so. Oh, man. Just yeah, think, think about, about things would have been different. Yeah, so. Dan's ghost yeah. would be tons of different other places. Okay, I was going to insert a... no. So. That's true. I was going to insert a joke here about the origin of Netflix and chill, but I will save you all of that. <laughs> uh, so the stories coming out of this storm sound, uh, they're epic and terrifying. So nowadays we'd kind of just like run home, hop on Instagram, kind of party it out, chill. just let it let it pass. Uh, many wrote that the arrival of the storm was preceded by a loud roar like that of a train approaching uh, on an empty landscape. And I was going to ask you, I was like, so you've never been stuck out in anything, but have you ever just felt like Mother Nature's like, pissed at you in particular yeah coming I mean, after you, know, you sometimes you know you're walking somewhere and it's freezing or it's incredible heat or it's yeah. raining i'm convinced that every time i go to load the jeep to come down to any of these events mm -hmm. um it decides to rain just then fair. only then so all day that's fair no so. i was i was kayaking in the ocean one time and it just started just yeah. all over the place, and yeah. I was like, I feel like this is a personal attack. Um, <laughs> and and I've been I've been stuck out in some snow before, but that college days so won't gets incriminating. So you mentioned that many of the school teachers uh, were barely older than the children that they taught. So some of them kept them, some of them sent them home. One child suffered frostbite walking only one block home. Yeah, yeah, that's so, cold. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize like when I first started reading this, like the gravity of it. I mean, how like how terrible it is just one block and not being able to see like that close in front right, of your face. Right. Well, I mean, 20 yards away. You yeah. know, Fred was 20 yards from the Henner house and couldn't see it. That's how close it was. And, you know, so, and I think that probably happened a lot yeah. during this weekend. Deal. Yeah. So I was going to make a joke about Fred, sound like a real cool kid, but I, I, I won't did. do that. Oh, God. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Sorry, so I didn't I get the cool part. The Fred, the, no, this, this is where I literally wrote down, I just said, holy shit. I said, this story made me laugh and cry at the same time. I had tears in my eyes multiple times doing this, and I, I don't feel a lot of things. And, <laughs> and this, these stories made me really, really upset. And like you, talk, you talked about, I was laughing because you talked about passing by the, the freezing cows. Like, yeah. That froze standing up, yeah. and I was like, so, to be clear, Wendy's could never use this right. beef, couldn't right? couldn't use that beef, that's right. And that's all I could think about, and but I was like, picture, what's wrong with but me? Then, but picture that, though. I mean, I, it, seriously, it, picture I'm picturing a, it. a cow frozen, like the butter cow, except it's an actual cow, and it's frozen. So, I know, and I know, laugh, and you know. I'm like, what's wrong with yeah. me? More than <laughs> more than 20% of those who died, you said, were children. I, okay, I have to read this again, because this was... This was horrible. Uh, you said their suffering was terrible. They froze alone or with their parents or died in a mad, frantic search for loved ones. They died with frozen skin torn from their faces where they had clawed at the mask of ice that covered their flesh with numb fingers. Some had died within hours of becoming lost while others lived through the night and then died at first light. They were found standing waist-deep in snowdrifts with their hands frozen to barbed wire fences, clutching at their clothing, buried under wagons on their backs and face down in the snow with their arms outstretched as if trying to crawl to safety. Women died upright in their homes with their children gathered gathered around them. Their fires had gone out when the last bits of wood, hay, and broken furniture had exhausted and the hearth had gone cold. What is wrong with you? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I didn't get into, because you could really get into a, a rabbit hole with, like, how these guys had heart attacks and froze after they started moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I tried to make the explanation as short as I could because it's actually kind of long. Mm -hmm. But the other thing was is they found a lot of people with their with their had stripped their clothes off. It's like hypothermia. Thing, yeah, right? and that's why. And but no one understood it back then. Mm -hmm. And so whenever someone is suffering from hypothermia before they die, they feel very hot, and so they end up taking off their clothes because they, they just lose their mind. And they kept finding people who had stripped their clothes off, and they couldn't understand what was going on mm -hmm. because no one was aware of that phenomenon right. yet. So no, that, that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I just noted that this is somehow the most upsetting thing you've ever written. Um, I don't have a lot, too much more to get through. But uh, the next day, so there's an eerie stillness to everything. Um, 
some now, more. That's something I think most of us have experienced, though. I mean, you guys, I'm sure you have, too, when you've had a big snowstorm and how quiet it always is the next day because mm -hmm. everything is muffled. There's no, nothing is echoing on anything. There's nothing bouncing back at you. You've just got this quiet. I mean, I grew up on a farm, so the only thing we would hear sometimes would go out, well, us screaming, but um, we'd go outside and you could hear snow falling off the trees, like, you know, hundreds of yards away, you could hear it hitting the snow with that kind of puff sound. Yeah. I mean, I can like hear it in my head still. I'm fascinated by winter. I really am. I don't really, I don't know. I don't, I don't mind it like most people do. I, I like warmer weather, mm -hmm. but um, during the middle of the pandemic, I was trying to figure out how to move to Iceland because they had very low numbers there and I'd like oh, to live okay. there. Actually, I just want to visit there because sure. I, I, I don't think I could learn that language. It makes no sense. So, you know. I think, no, I think you could fit in, especially, you, you could go to some Scandinavian country. Well, yeah, I could fit in and that. then they go, oh, look, this guy's pale as death. He must be one of us. <laughs> right, so, right. So. One of us. Oh, God. Okay, I wasn't going to do this. Troy, do you know what they should have done, though? Mm. They should have stood in a corner because corners are 90 degrees. Oh, God. Cody, Jesus. All right, I'm, <laughs> I'm done after that. Um, uh, so, so you mentioned so many people. I told you this is for me. This is not for you. Um, <laughs> so many people make it through the night, and then they, uh, yeah, like I said, stand up, you know, drop dead. I said, now you're just putting the bad news into bullet point form and just going through it. I did. Yeah, it. I kind of did. I kind of bullet pointed the worst stories. Yeah, yeah. Per, yeah, precise number of deaths never determined, probably between 300 to 500. Right. And again, so this whole, these, all these prairies should just be like, Littered with ghosts and terrible, theoretically sad, sad yeah, news. That's why they're stories. Um, and you said some of these ghosts have been people that had died before the storm. Uh, the clients getting a knock at their door from the oldest dead son, only to have him disappear. A window from near, uh, oh, I'm sorry, a widow from near Sioux Falls claimed that she had seen her husband walking about the barn one day, but there are no footprints, seemed to have vanished, all that sort of stuff. And you said, it, it, to Indy, you said it could perhaps be summed up by the words of uh, Sadie Shaw in a letter to her relatives back east from her Douglas County homestead. She wrote, I've seen the dreaded Dakota. Oh, it was terrible. I've often read about blizzards, but they really have to be seen to be fully realized. Um, that's really all that I have. There's this really, really sad and, and terrible. Um, <laughs> I'm, I feel, well, that's what I specialize in. I feel in, worse so. off. <laughs> yeah. Sad and terrible. A lot of times, like, I like, oh, I get to learn some fun facts or trivia. No more. No, I just feel worse for having done. Well, but didn't, didn't you learn this actually happened, or did you know about it? I know, I know. I didn't know about okay. this particular yeah, children's blizzard, so. flamethrower burger, whatever. Um, no, I didn't know about this one. Uh, we, so we don't get to do this too often. So I'm curious, does anybody have any questions about this story or for Troy and I and in we'll particular? We'll repeat it back. Um, yeah, and we'll repeat yeah. it back so it's, yeah. it's, everybody yeah, can capture it. But we, 15 minutes. Okay, yes, yeah, so we have so a, we we have a little minutes. bit of time. We want to take it. So. Um, and if not, you know, like I said, yeah, we can, we'll we can all go, we can chain smoke outside. We can all hang out and just decompress. We'll have a little break before the last thing. I'll turn the... Turn the furnace back on in here, let it run for a little bit while we get together for the last one. Yeah, so. but if any, yeah, does anybody have any pressing questions, comments, jokes? No, no jokes, we've heard comments. Hey. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jokes. here for it. So. Okay, okay, well, cool. that's it all then, right. that's all I got. That works. All right, so, well, good. Are we, we just going to, you just want to wrap yeah, it? Yeah, because it's a live thing, so Are we don't sure? need to do the You ending, did change so. this, I know you I changed it. I did change it, I did change Well, you know what, I did change it, so you why did don't you go ahead it. and... I'll let you get part. Let's let's just do part of it. Okay, so I'm just gonna start. Actually, okay, so I didn't read this in particular because I knew that you changed it up, and I wanted to see if you were trying to trip me up or what's <laughs> going on. So I'm just gonna we're just, fuck it. We're doing it live. Okay, so this episode of the American Hauntings podcast is written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. I'm not gonna edit this at all. If you're not a regular listener of the hey, podcast, we'll, oh, we'll yeah, hope that you check out not. a bi-weekly dose of history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. See the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show the notes, photos, pictures. links, and more. No, seriously. No, wait, wait, wait. I'm serious. I'm serious. Remember how you were going to start putting pictures from the Hollywood episodes up? Did you do that? I'll get around to it. If you're a regular uh, listener, so you haven't done it. we hope you'll take oh, time to review figure. us on the Apple Podcast app and share the show with your friends, neighbors, relatives, people you pass on the street, whoever. We couldn't and wouldn't do the show without you. If you're a fan, then you also know that American Hauntings is not just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, and more on our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. For those of you who write to us and, and tell us that you, thing that that you here, wish so we posted shows more often, well, you can have fresh content if you support the show on Patreon. It's not the only perk that 
that you might get either. I've never read this before. There are discount shirts, stuff in the mail, all kinds of things. For those who don't understand how important our Patreon <laughs> is to us, go back and listen to the first season the and then listen sucks. to this one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Patreon's what made it all get better. It's not the countless hours well, I spent learning. Not, but yeah, it's not Cody. So check it out at so. patreon.com slash American Hauntings. And if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think of us, we're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, messages in a bottle, carrier pigeon, telegram. Uh, and I put telegram in there because we know we made jokes there. about Western Union and telegrams and Diana, who yep. is undoubtedly listening, of course. decided to look this up and found out that Western Union had gone out of business in 2006. So we were very sad about this. And she tweeted this at, at Cody and I. It's very sad that there was no more telegrams. Mm -hmm. And then... I don't, know I don't know how they found it, but some company that still does telegrams like got in on the Twitter posts between us and yeah. said, hey, we still do telegrams. <laughs> so uh, apparently, I don't know why you would, but apparently you can still have a telegram sent. So yep. I'm going to start doing that instead of emails. I like it. And, you know, and just uh, the guy shows up at your at your door in the Western Union. Yeah. Well, you won't be Western Union, though. Right. That's kind of a downer. Well, it so. is. It's like this meeting could have been an email. It's like, well, this you know, email is going to be a telegram now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so until next time, goodbye, so long. See you later. Thank you very much, everybody. All right, thanks, you guys. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, we have got about 20 minutes to take a break, go downstairs. I know some of you, if you want to, you have not been down to see the vendors downstairs. There are still...